Welcome, everyone. Find a seat if you don't already have one, or a table, or a couch, or the floor, whatever. So good to see you guys. So, I don't know if you're like me, but I've lived in many homes throughout my life. But no matter what, none of those houses, I should say, feel like a home. And it's not because of my lack of interior design, because uh, my wife has that covered, thankfully. I am really poor at that. But I think it's something more than that. It's something that Moses understood, that we are never really at home in this world. No matter where we are, no matter what place, our home away from home is with the Lord. And that's what we're going to look at today. There's a story in Exodus chapters 32 through 34, and I'm not going to read it, but essentially the Israelites had made the golden calf. You remember the story. God said to them, I'm going to lead you into the promised land. I'm going to send an angel. I'm going to keep my promise to you and send you into that place, but I'm not going to go with you. And Moses came before the Lord, and he said this. Exodus 33, verse 13. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And he said, my presence, God said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, that's what Moses said, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses understood that no matter what we receive from God, no matter where we go, if God is not with us, it doesn't matter. There's nothing different about us unless God is with us. Let's pray. Father, I just bow before you, Jesus, and I thank you, God, for your presence. I thank you, God, that you sent an intercessor. You sent your son, Jesus. God, when we deserve separation from you, and you are good no matter what, you, you sent your son, Jesus. You sent your son, Father, and we just thank you for that right now, and we just acknowledge your presence that you have given to us, that you have decided to dwell in the hearts that you have made. God, we are in need of you today. There are many who come today here in this place that need you. God, I need you. God, would you meet us? I pray not for a great sermon, but I pray for a great God to come and meet with us because we are in need, God. Thank you, God, that when we draw near to you, you keep your promises and you draw near to us. Amen. Today we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 7. And um, the people in this passage that are coming against Stephen, who we'll talk about in a minute, these are the same stiff-necked <laughs> descendants that Moses was dealing with uh, in the wilderness. They had the same stiff-necked hard hearts against God that the Israelites did in the wilderness. And by way of reminder, Sam kind of touched on it last week, but what's happening here in chapter 7 is Stephen is basically being falsely accused of a number of things. 
And so he gives his defense. He gives essentially a sermon to defend what he said, but he does more than that. Um, the accusations that these people brought against them are, are highlighted for us in chapter 6, and I will read them to you. You can follow along. Chapter 6, verse 11 then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. Verse 13, and they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. So were these things true? Obviously not. They were false witnesses, um, just like Jesus had to deal with. And then in chapter 7, verse 1, the high priest said to Stephen, are these things so? Okay, so that's the setting. That's what we're going to be looking at today. But before we look at Stephen's response um, to these accusers, we're going to look at how they responded. In verse 54 of chapter 7, I'm going to read it. It says, now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, or he, yeah, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, so they could hear it, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Falling asleep, quite a, quite a contrast to, the, to this horrific scene uh, that Stephen was right in the middle of. So what is it that Stephen said that caused such a vicious, violent, and, and ultimately fatal reaction by these people against him? The other question that I will pose is, how in the middle of all of this is Stephen so at peace? We're going to answer the first question first. Verse 2, rewind to the beginning of the chapter. This is Stephen's response to their false accusations. So we're going to cover a lot of ground. I'm going to move through these pa this passage, the, the Stephen's sermon, essentially pretty quickly and just make some quick comments. So try to pay attention. If you're falling asleep, you'd have my permission to, like, you know, nudge the person next to you. If I fall asleep, then we're all in trouble. Um, uh, I was actually reading this to my wife the other night, and I'm like, are you still awake? Are you still awake? So, just so you guys know, if you fall asleep, there's no judgment. Um, I will do something to get your attention, hopefully. Verse 2, And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Go out from your land and from your kindred, and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Speaking of uh, Israel, right? Where, where they were in Jerusalem there. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, in the land, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners or aliens in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. So Stephen looks at, he's going to be looking at three primary characters here in this uh, sermon, this address, this defense. Abraham, Joseph, and Moses. He's going to spend most of his time on Moses, but we're going to look at Abraham first. And 
Essentially, what's happened, what he's telling the story of here is the, the God of glory, and Stephen specifically uses this terminology, the God of glory. God's glory speaks of his light primarily, but all that God is, his nature. So the God of light comes down and he rescues this man, Abram, from the land of Mesopotamia, the land of the Chaldeans. Now, if you know anything about the Chaldeans, essentially they were the forerunners of the Babylonians, and they were steeped in idolatry, witchcraft, in deep darkness. So here God, the God of glory, the God of light, comes down into this dark place, right, to Abram, a man whose God is a stranger to him, but God comes to Abram, okay? And he frees him from this place by calling him out of it. He calls him away from the comforts of his family, having been in bondage by the false gods of his family, of his father's. And what did Abram do? He obeys God. He simply obeyed. He went out from the land of Chaldeans, and he went to the land that God was to show him. So, this is, if you put yourself in Abram's uh, sandals or shoes or whatever, to make that sort of decision to step out and do something that's completely different for a God that you've never met before, that would be a big deal, wouldn't it? Um, To go to a place you don't even know where you're going, How could Abraham have courage to do what he did, to go to this unknown place and believe for these descendants that God had promised him? And then, by the way, be willing to sacrifice his first descendant, second descendant actually, but the son of promise, Isaac. He didn't ultimately sacrifice his son, but God told him, I want you to sacrifice your son. And Abraham was completely completely willing to do that. How could he have, how could this man have such courage to do these things? Even though he lived in a land, in his lifetime, he didn't even see the land given to him. In his lifetime, he didn't see all these descendants. And yet, he trusted God. First of all, it's because he didn't desire or place his hope in the physical world. Hebrews 11 makes that very clear. It says, for he was, Hebrews 11, verses 10 and 11, for he, Abram, Abraham, was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age of childbearing, since she considered him faithful who had promised. So Abraham and Sarah, they did what they did, because they believed in an unseen God. God had come to them and spoken these things to them. Um, he, didn't, he didn't, even though God said, I'm gonna give you this physical land, Abraham said, you know, that's great. I appreciate your promises. I appreciate your, your blessings. I'm thankful for them, but my real home is in another place. And it's amazing that this man at this time, not seeing what we see, looked forward to that. The second reason I believe he had, was able to have courage is because he simply believed that God himself was his reward. In Genesis 15, verse 1, I'm reading from the New King James. God says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. If Abraham did not believe that God was his reward, then he wouldn't have been willing to give up all these other things. It was from the place of believing truly in his heart that God was his reward, God was his real treasure, that he said these things, this child, this land, even though they're from God, they're not nearly as important and valuable to me as God. Once Abraham met the living God, there was no going back. And God was with him all throughout his journeys. He he took him from Mesopotamia. He went to Haran, where he stopped. And then he went on to Canaan. He went to Egypt, then back to Canaan. He went to all these places, but guess what? God was with him in all these places. None of these places... God had physically given any land to Abraham at this time. But yet, God was with him in all these places. 
even though he didn't have the promise yet. What was God's purpose in going to Abraham in the first place? Why would, why would he do this? Well, first of all, he rescued him personally, obviously, but then he rescued him for a purpose. He rescued him so he could be used of God to rescue others and also obviously give us a picture of the one, the ultimate rescuer, Jesus. Um, so he made this covenant of circumcision with him. And um, we were in the car, Sam and Tanner and I, the other day, and kind of talking about this. Like, why, why didn't God just say, you know, uh, I need you to cut your finger or cut your toe? Why the reproductive organ? <laughs> because it's a picture of the fruitfulness of a new creation, a new race that God was going to create through his son, Jesus. And this was the beginning of it. There, were, there was a covenant with Adam. He said, be fruitful, multiply. How did that go? Didn't work. They failed at the beginning. Noah, same thing, but he added to it. If anyone kills someone, then their blood will be shed also. Okay, that was a Noahic covenant. But the covenant that God had with Abraham was different. After 2,000 to 25 years of man failing and not getting it, God gave him a chance. They didn't get it. He comes to Abraham, and he, he, he layers on that covenant, but he changed it. He said, he didn't say, go be, be fruitful and multiply. He said, I will make you fruitful. I will make of you a great nation. God comes in and says, I'm going to do what man has failed to do for 2,500 years or so. So it's significant that Stephen starts this, this uh, address with Abraham as opposed to going back to, Abraham, or, uh, to, to Adam. God was building something. God was building something. That's why God went to this man, Abraham. He was building something based on faith, not based on anything that man, man did or didn't do. But there was resistance, like there was with Stephen. There was resistance from Satan. Anytime God makes a promise of something that he's going to do and has a plan, Satan comes against him. God said, be fruitful and multiply. How did God choose to continue what he was building? How did he preserve his people? He did it through a man named Joseph. Verse 9 says, And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. Patriarchs being Joseph's brothers, by the way. What does it say next? But God was with him. So he went from the land of Canaan to a foreign land, but God was with him and rescued him out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all, not very many. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan or Israel, and laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. So, quick side note. Abraham bought a piece of land, which means God had not yet given the land to Abraham. He had to buy it from somebody else. It's in foreign land, even though it was the land God had promised to him um, at this time. So the story of Joseph, essentially God, what did he do? God came, he rescued, and he freed Joseph from prison. After being in bondage by who? essentially by his brothers, while he was in Egypt, in a, in a foreign land. Joseph was in prison for, scholars think, anywhere from 10 to 13 years. Joseph, in response to God's kindness to him, rescued and also forgave and fed his undeserving brothers and his father from death. They would have died. So the, the, this race would have potentially been snuffed out, but God sent Joseph ahead of time before 
his brothers. Before anybody knew there was going to be a famine, Joseph was sent ahead. And it's interesting because this was all in a foreign land, in Egypt, but yet God was with Joseph. It didn't matter where he was physically, God was still with him. So how could Joseph have endured all those years of pain wrongfully and then forgive and rescue the very ones who put him there? I I believe it's because, first of all, God was with him. And then God rescued him. In Psalm 105, 19, it says, until what he had said came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him, speaking of Joseph. So this was, a, this was a testing time. This was a trying time. Joseph hadn't done anything wrong, but God was with him. That is how he endured. God was with him. He was in a foreign land, but God was with him. And he was simply following, I believe, the example that he'd seen and how faithful God was to rescue him. This is how God works. He rescues those who need help, and then he uses them to rescue others and help others. He's still doing that today. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. What was God's ultimate purpose in staying with Joseph, in working with him, in being with him? Again, it was so that he could preserve what God was building. God had started building something with Abraham, and it was there was the risk of what God was building in, in human beings being snuffed out. So God used this man, an unlikely character, really. Um, this, this little spoiled kid, right? <laughs> you remember the story of Joseph. His brothers hated him, and God uses this, this guy. He had no clue 10 to 13 years in prison what was going to happen next. He didn't see the future. He was in prison. He was afflicted. He was being tested. He had no idea what was happening, but he knew one thing. He knew God was with him, and that's how he endured, because God was with him. So in time, the number of people grew from 75 to an estimated 2 to 3 million people at the time of Moses. And that's where we transition here into verse 17. This is the, the longest section of Stephen's sermon. Is everyone still awake? Do you need more of the coffee? Are we, are we good? Okay, you guys, you guys look locked on. I'm just joking. Um, I don't know what I did with my coffee. Um, verse 17, but as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, so he's, he's remembering the promise that he made previously, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. Where were they increasing in number? In Egypt. Not in any special place. They were in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed or known um, that he was alive, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up in her own, as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in words and deeds. Verse 23, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers. So he's in Egypt. It comes into his heart to visit his brothers um, there in Egypt, his, his uh, Hebrew brothers and sisters, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, men, you are brothers. Why do you do wrong to each other? Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside. We're going to see that phrase again, by the way. Thrust Moses aside, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And this retort, at this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian. So he goes from Egypt to the wilderness of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. By the way, he was a herding sheep for 40 years. He was 40 years old in Egypt, and then he left and went to the wilderness. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire, in a bush. 
of Mount Sinai. Uh, I already read that. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. And God said this, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Where was Moses when God said this to him? Was he in a temple? Was he in a church? Where was he? He was in the desert. And God says, this place that you're standing on is holy ground. Was it a special place? It was only special because God was there. Wherever God is, is holy. And God comes to live in his children. And it, it is his holiness that is in us. We are not holy. He in us sanctifies us. He in us is the one that justifies us in the first place. So he's here in this, in this holy place because God is there in that place, in the desert, he says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. <laughs> so he says, I have come down to deliver them. Moses is probably thinking, oh, great. You've come down. Good. Uh, I'm sending you. Wait, I thought you'd come. Okay. So he sent Moses. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt, and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai, and with our fathers, he received living oracles to give us. Verse 39, our fathers refused to obey him, but did what? Thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away. Sad, dude. Turned away and gave them over to worship the hosts of heaven. As it is written in the book of the prophets, did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? Rhetorical question. You took up the tent of Molech and the star of your god, Rephim, the images that you made to worship and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. So God comes and he rescues Moses um, from death as a baby. He, he's just like Jesus, by the way. When Jesus was born, remember the, the Herod tried to kill all the, the baby boys? Um, Pharaoh did the same thing. And God rescued Moses. In Egypt, it says he was beautiful in God's sight. God saw him. God was with him. Moses, in return, he responded to God by rescuing God's people from slavery in the foreign land of Egypt. I'm going to ask the same question I did with the other two characters in the story. How did Moses have strength to willingly turn away from the pleasures and the reputation of Egypt and return only to rescue and try to lead the people who thrust him aside time after time? How could he have that amount of courage? Because he trusted in Christ even though he didn't see him yet. It's really hard to believe, but Hebrews 11 says that. By faith, Moses, verse 24, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach or the shame of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. 
By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. So by faith, Moses did all these things. He said, I'm not going to count the fleeting pleasure of this world, anything in comparison to the immeasurable value of this God that I have met in the wilderness, this God that's appeared to me, this God that's rescued me from birth. So he trusted in Christ, and he met God in the wilderness. In, in Psalm 90, verse 1, Moses really we see that he gets it. He prays this. A prayer of Moses, Psalm 90, verse 1. The man of God, Lord, you, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Moses got it. Whether he was in Egypt, whether he was in the desert of Midian, God was his dwelling place. When he didn't have a physical dwelling place, God was his dwelling place. And in Exodus chapter, I think it's 33, we see the story of God making available an opportunity for the people to meet with him. I'm gonna read this. Exodus 33 verse seven says, now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Those who sought the Lord would go out there. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. So here's an opportunity for these people to come into the presence of God. But when Moses has said, when he did this, every time he went into the presence of God, his face was shining. And they were afraid. They didn't want to be in the presence of God. They, they, they were too in love with their, with, their, with their calf that they had made with their own hands, with their own works. They were too in love with that. They, they, they didn't have the love of the Lord. They were just, they were just fearful of God. And God says, I'm, I'm, I'm going to set up a tent. I'm going to invite you into this place where you can be with me. And Joshua said, even though Moses is even heading out, I can't leave. i got to stay here. Joshua needed God. We see in Joshua chapter 1, verse 9, God comes to him and he says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid because I'm going to be with you. Joshua was afraid. And God encouraged him by saying, I will be with you. That was Joshua's encouragement, is to be with God, and that's where he stayed um, as long as God wanted to him to, to stay there. And then you see what Joshua did. He conquered many of these nations that God commanded him to do. And, and I truly believe that, that one of the reasons why God selected Joshua for this is because he did spend time with God. I mean, we, we throw that phrase around, I think, like it's just a thing that we do, but it, it is all that we should do. And what I mean by that is that we shouldn't, I'm not saying we shouldn't do anything else, but without that, we can't do anything else. Without him, we can't do anything that even matters. So Moses understood that God was his dwelling place. God had a purpose for preserving Moses from death. It was to save him personally and then to use him to save his people, to preserve this race that Pharaoh really tried to snuff out. Um, he oppressed them, he afflicted them. And you know what? Did they deserve God's mercy? Did they deserve God's provision? His help, his deliverance? No. They turned away from him. We saw that. But God keeps his promises. And the difference between Moses and Joshua and people like that and, and, and the rest of the, these two to three million people, many, many of them, is they, 
they just, Moses and Joshua just responded to God. They simply, when he called them, they just said, okay. They said, you know what, I'm gonna turn from what I've been doing and I'm just gonna turn to you. It, that, that was the difference. And then they stayed in that place. They didn't depart, they kept coming back. They needed God. They realized that he was their dwelling place, not just once, but daily. So it's, it's no accident um, that, that this is the story Stephen is telling because these people, the people of Israel were increasing in number at this time. And, and the enemy, Satan, was trying to snuff them out. What, what was happening, what was the setting that Stephen was sharing in? The church was growing. We saw it last week, chapter six. Growing pains. And then they hit a wall, right? There was complaining and there was conflict. Complaining that widows were getting neglected in the daily distribution, right? In, in, in serving. So the, so the apostles come together and they come up with a solution. Um, and then the, the church is, and one of the, the solutions, of course, is to appoint these men, Stephen was one of them, so that serving could continue and the apostles could focus on their calling, which was teaching, administering the word, right? Um, and praying. And then what Stephen and others were called to do, they could do their ministry. And what happened? The church began to increase again. More resistance. As it's growing, resistance came from these, these religious leaders, those who were called the freedmen, which is really interesting because they were anything but free. They should have called, been called the bondage men, <laughs> enslaved men. They were called freedmen, and they're trying to put, basically, enslave Stephen with, with the law um, and, and make a big deal about something that, that had already been fulfilled in Christ. So at this time, Moses, the, the people were, were increasing in number. Um, and so that's exactly what Stephen was dealing with. It, it was the same sort of situation that he was in the middle of, um, was God was using him and others to, to further the kingdom, right? And the enemy said, no, I don't like that. But the enemy couldn't stop that. Right at the beginning of chapter eight, verse one, it says, and Saul approved of his, Stephen's execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution sounds bad, it is bad, against the church in Jerusalem. And what happened? And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So God used this horrific thing that Stephen and others had to endure. And he used it, even though those who scattered were, were fearful, he used it to further his kingdom, to spread the gospel. And I'm, uh, we're gonna show a, um, a video and as that's uh, queuing up, I want to read something to you from Habakkuk. So even though the enemy tries to stop and has continued to stop what God's doing, um, Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14 says, For the earth will, will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. How does God's glory, how is God chosen for his glory to spread throughout the earth? In people in the sharing of the gospel of Jesus Christ through people. And when people, another individual believes, the gospel spreads. Another person is saved, and, and the glory of God continues to spread throughout the earth. That's how God has chosen uh, to, to make himself known, is through people. So I'm gonna show, uh, we're gonna look at this video, um, and, and it shows the spread of Christianity. And one thing I want you to note is all these different uh, empires and these things that were really raised up uh, to resist Christianity, to resist what God's doing, but, but watch the white areas. Go ahead, Mike. Nothing will stop the spread of the good news. You saw it. And that was 2016. Um, it's obviously spread more since then, just the last few years. Man-made empires have never been able to stand against the kingdom of God and they never will. And this, what's this is what's happening, is God has birthed his church, this resistance is coming, but it, it did not stop what God wanted to do. How many times, and, I, and I, those who know me, I probably sound like a broken record, I've said this so many times, but it just never ceases to amaze me, how many times 
the religious leaders came against Jesus to arrest him and kill him throughout his life on earth. And how many times did their efforts succeed? Zero. Zero. There's even one time where the, the, the soldiers came to arrest him, and they go back to the priest, and the priests are like, where is he? And they're like, no one ever spoke like this. They didn't even know what to do. They forgot what they were supposed to do. They were completely overpowered by the, by the gospel of Jesus. Jesus only went to the cross by choice. And Satan brought his worst, but God brought his best out of that. And we're sitting here today because of what he did. Because God throughout the ages has been faithful to his people, to carry out his promise. Even when they were unfaithful to him, he said, I cannot deny myself. I will not lie. I've said I'm going to do this and I'm going to be faithful and I'm going to continue. How many times has he put up with me? How many times has he put up with you? He is a patient God. We just praise him today for his, for his patience, for his goodness. Verse 44 says, our fathers, Stephen says, our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness just as he spoke to Moses directed, he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. Yet, Verse 48, yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. Made by hands. As heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool, what kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. So David said, God, you, you need to have a place to live. I mean, I live in this palace and, and, and there needs to be a place for my God to live because he's just worth more than I am and I live, in this, I live in this amazing place. And what did God say? Yeah, all right. I'll let you build me a, a temple. It's kind of like this. My, uh, my kids, I, I, um, they like to make forts. And so I came home the other day, or I actually got up in the morning, and, and I walked into the living room, and there are like blankets and pillows and chairs like all over the place. And this isn't the first time they've done that. And I'm like, okay, my first reaction is like, this is okay, it's interesting. Um, they're like, Dad, come play with us. Come hang out with us. We made you a little place. What am I going to say? No? No, I, I live in a big house, and I'm not going to hang out there. No, my kids want me to hang out with them in the little place they made for me. That's what God did with David. And he let Solomon build it, but he's like, he's like, I, I don't need this house, but my son who who's found favor in my sight, by the way, David? Sure, I'll dwell in that place. I'll even help you build it. I'll give you the plans for it. But God's intent, God was the one who said, I'm gonna dwell in a tent. We serve a nomad God. We serve a God who is not confined to a specific place. He says, the heavens are where I dwell and the earth is my footstool. What are you gonna build for me? And that's what these people mistakenly thought. They're like, speaking against Stephen, remember the accusation? Stephen spoke against the temple. He spoke against the law. He spoke against God and Moses. And Stephen's like, the temple? Look at all these stories. Look at the common thread. Where were these people? John Stott said it this way. Long before there was a holy temple, there was a holy people to whom God had pledged himself. Before Long before there was a holy place, there was a holy people to whom God had pledged himself. These people wandering around. Abraham, God was with him. 
Joseph in prison in Egypt, God was with him. Moses in the wilderness in Egypt, wherever he was, God was with him. And that's all they needed. They got it. I, I forget it sometimes. I think it is something that I need to make. I think it is something that I need to do. Instead of just resting in the work that he's already done and letting his hands and what he made dictate um, what I rest in, instead of me trying to make something for him with my hands. The implication in verse 51, it says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart. The implication there is God also dwells in hearts, obviously, right? He, 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 he wants to, this is his earth. He wants to, there's no place where he does not want to be because one day he will be everywhere. The only place where God will not be is where he is not allowed to be. The only place God will not be now and in eternity is where he's not allowed to be. And at this time, these people listening to Stephen, accusing him, the place that God was not dwelling was in their hearts. He said, I made your hearts and I chose to dwell in human hearts. That's my plan. And these guys are like, no, we wanna control you. We wanna make it our way. We wanna, we wanna focus on this temple because look how glorious it is and look how much money we make off the people in the temple. They didn't wanna depart from that. Look at how amazing our clothing is. Look, look at our position, look at our reputation. We're not giving that up. And God's like, I came down as a humble servant, born in a barn, to dwell in human hearts that were formerly dirty that I've made clean. That's God's plan. And he's not limited to that. He, he, he's gonna envelop the whole earth. So, Stephen continues on. He says, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You received the laws delivered by angels and did not keep it. So, I mean, the, the, he kind of turns the tables. Like, they're accusing him, they're judging him, and he's turned the tables. He's like, you're the ones being accused right now because you have resisted the Holy Spirit like your fathers did. You've killed the prophets, persecuted them. You killed Jesus, the Messiah, you betrayed him, and you don't even keep the law. And here you are accusing, they're accusing Stephen of the temple, of, of speaking against the temple and, and the law, things that God had already fulfilled in Jesus. Martin Luther said this, I'd rather be in hell with Christ than in heaven without him. I'd rather be in hell with Christ than in heaven without him. He got it. God is our dwelling place. It is possible to talk of God's glory without walking with the God of glory. And um, I ask the question as we, as we look at this, um, how could these people not see what Stephen saw? How could they not understand what he understood? There is one reason, 2 Corinthians Chapter 3, verse 14 says, But their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. What had previously hid from us God's presence, his glory, his goodness, who he is, is removed only in turning to him. And you know, the amazing thing is, God didn't just forgive us and justify us, he's still saving us. Salvation didn't just stop and then start. It, it's a continual thing, not to be justified again, but to be sanctified ongoing. And so here today, uh, we have the, the opportunity to, to remember that. And, and we're gonna do that. We're gonna take communion uh, here in a little bit. Um, but just in closing, Stephen, I asked the question at the beginning, how did Stephen have such peace and forgiveness even though he was being murdered in this place? And I would submit this to you, that it is because he knew his body wasn't his home. 
no more than any earthly house that we have is. Like Moses, Stephen was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God and would rather dwell with God than in any building made by hands. How could Stephen have such peace? Like Moses, Stephen lived so much in the reality of the unseen that this unseen world became visible to him. Both men, Stephen and Moses, saw the glory of God with their physical eyes. And like Moses, Stephen became like the one who he spent time with. And like his Lord, he even died with the same heart and words in his mouth. Unlike his accusers, Stephen was free to rest in the work of his Lord Jesus and what he had done for him and in the love that he had shown to him. So Sam, if you would come up, we're gonna, we're gonna do communion. Uh, we're gonna take communion together and, and kind of individually at your table. But um, as, as Sam strums and as we sing this song, um, I just wanna mention something and, and remind us of something. Jesus said, I am, right? God, Yahweh, said to Moses in the wilderness, I am that I am. God is here today. God has dealt with our yesterday. He's forgiven us of our sins if we're in Jesus. But he's the God of the now. And so as you take communion, as you as you do that, as we take it, as I take it as well, I would remind us that, that whatever you are facing today, whatever you are dealing with, maybe it's something that you continue to keep doing and you're just like, I'm so sick and tired of doing that thing and I just can't break free. Christ wants to set you free from that. Whether it's a distraction that's just hanging around your life, whatever it is, maybe it's you just want more boldness for the Lord. You're like, what's, what's going on? Maybe you don't even know what it is. He died. He shed his blood and he rose again to give you life, not just yesterday, but today, right now with what you're facing. And that is what this blood and this body, this bread reminds us of, is what he does for us, not just yesterday, but today. He is not an irrelevant God. He is relevant to what you are dealing with right now and what I'm dealing with right now. And so as, as Sam plays the, the guitar and sings, sing along um, and, and just take communion on your own and just, just spend time in his presence because no, nothing but his presence and being with him and acknowledging him and worshiping him, just, just sitting here with him and remembering it is gonna change us. He is the only one that can change us and that is what this reminds us of. It reminds us of what he did to bring us to him and to bring us together.